Welcome to Getting Apps Done, a mostly non-technical podcast with the goal of helping you deliver software. Because if you didn't ship it, it didn't happen. All right, well, I'll start by introducing us. I'm Joshua, and this is Kellen. He's my co-host. Um, we've both been in tech for quite a while. We've been developing software each for over 20 years. And uh, actually, we were inspired by Moms Can Code and the 100 Days of Code. And we wanted to do something to help new developers in a way that was going to be actually beneficial to them. And <laughs> neither of us have been new developers for quite a while. So we wanted to... I actually I thought it would kind of be a neat idea because usually when you have people on a podcast, it's to interview them. I thought it would be kind of neat to reverse the roles a little bit and bring people on this podcast to interview us to, so that you can actually ask questions that are relevant to you, not just what we think is relevant to you, if that makes sense. That sounds great. <laughs> All right. Um, so you said you had uh, – in fact, actually, why don't we start with uh, who you are and what you do. We did do a little bit of uh, – perusing on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn prior to this. And from what I saw, it looked like you were in banking before you decided to do software development. Is that true? Yes. I spent uh, most of my career in finance and investing, um, split roughly 50-50 between the mutual fund world as an analyst and portfolio manager, uh, and then as uh, bank high net worth portfolio management. Okay. That's quite a shift from that to software development then. What caused you to start to look at software development? Is that a recent thing or has that been kind of on the back burner for a long time for you? I would say in a sense, both. Um, I took some time off recently to spend some extra time with my kids uh, while I had, while I still had the opportunity and that gave me the chance to sort of ask the age old question, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> and my, my experience with tech actually goes, I took my first programming class back in junior high school, which was programming basic on a TRS-80. Well, that sounds familiar. And, it, it, you know, in, in my career has, has touched on technology. I actually ran a telecommunications fund during the original NASDAQ bubble, which was interesting. Exciting. Yes, very exciting. Uh, learned a lot of great lessons. And then obviously, you know, have paid attention to technology for years through my investing work. Um, but, you know, I've, I joked for a long time that if I had college to do all over again, I'd be a computer science major. And as I said, having taken this time off, I finally decided, you know, why not do it? Minus going back and spending four years doing it. Yes. Uh, and that's actually something that has changed quite a bit over the years is you don't have to go get a four-year degree to get involved. There are so many different boot camps and other ways to get into development now that it it's a very different environment than it used to be. Absolutely. And, and that's the route that I took. Um, I signed up with Actualize, which is a firm out of Chicago and did it as an online course, but it was online via a Zoom classroom. Um, so it was video classroom. So it really, to me, combined the best of both worlds. It was online and I could do it from my living room, but it felt like being in a classroom. But for me personally, that was perfect because I didn't, you know, the traditional after work time, the stuff that I still did in my life, whether it was my nonprofit involvement, my kids' sporting events, all of that stuff happened in the traditional after work East Coast envelope. So that six to nine, four <laughs> to nine window here was awful for me. Yeah. Um, so being able to do it, and I think I'm half vampire anyway. So doing it late at night was great. It's really cool. So, um, all right. Well, I will. I will kick this off. Um, 
and, and you alluded to it earlier, I think there are more and more people entering technology now with what I'll call, you know, non-traditional or unconventional backgrounds like myself. Um, so when you guys are looking to, you know, assemble a team or something, what non-coding trade or skill are you most interested in? And I realize that may depend a little bit on, on the role, but would it, is it communication? Would it be having that a sales goal? Uh, just thinking in terms of a lot of us trying to, to pitch our own backgrounds to a prospective employer. So that's actually, so it's kind of an interesting thing when, when as for me, for example, when I'm looking to, to fill roles on the team, I'm usually looking at my own team's weaknesses and trying to find folks that can kind of prop those things up. So if I have a team that's really heavy in like CS majors that that was their thing. They're, they're deep into algorithms, but they, you know, they haven't talked to anybody outside of their house in a couple of months. Uh, then obviously I'm going to be looking for people that are better at communicating. Um, or maybe I'm looking for project, you know, somebody who can, can handle the, the project management or the, the, the general timing side of things. But I, I do, I tend to look towards the weaknesses rather than any specific skills when building a team. I want, I want them to be complementary. Mm -hmm. uh, that's generally my goal. And so, just kind of as a recommendation on people that are, are trying to come into these roles, I would recommend just being kind of showing what you're best at uh, is kind of a the, the easiest way to go about that is, you know, kind of a, a very genuine show your strengths, whatever those strengths are, and, and try to fit those to whatever the role is. Um, I know, that obviously, that's a bit of a challenge in some cases. Some folks are looking for cookie cutter developers, and that it's mm -hmm. kind of difficult to fit into those things. But the best roles will be the ones that can that can definitely adapt to you to your own strengths. Yep, they're going to be more rewarding for you and for the team in general if you fit in nicely. And in general, a lot of those things are not necessarily development skills because, uh, particularly when you're looking at junior developers or early stage developers. A lot of them have come out of the same sort of boot camps and things like that. So they have very similar experience in development. But the things that will really make a junior developer stand out for me are going to be the extra things. So if they did some time as a project manager before that, or if they happen to also be a design major, because quite often de development mm -hmm. and design come very close in hand, those are things that I'll be looking at and I'll be recognizing those things as well. So don't just show up your development chops, but also look at the other things that you've done particularly if this is a second career. For you, the banking is actually a huge benefit to you, particularly in sectors that can benefit from very similar things because you have inside knowledge of those businesses, and that actually makes you better at talking to customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're, and just to, to kind of answer the question a little bit more directly, if you're looking for just like the general all-purpose skill that we wish every developer had, it would probably be like time management, project management, communication, basic skills, those sort of things. I did want to mention, <laughs> you know, the, the more specific answer is probably that, but really right. uh, compared to like your, your investment experience, that's way more valuable than a project, another project management skills. Like the, the uniqueness and uniqueness of, of folks is usually far more valuable than whatever the next most valuable basic skill is. Great, that makes a lot of sense. Um, another question uh, is evaluating, you know, as a new developer, obviously, time is a precious commodity and there's a gazillion things to learn and only so much time to do it. Um, so I'm curious how you guys would evaluate the value of learning more of a legacy technology versus the shiny new thing. And what prompted this is some discussions I've had 
um, at a couple of meetups and networking events, and it wound up in a discussion of Java versus Python on the back end. <laughs> and I had sort of been leaning Java, and, and every single person I talked to was, oh, no, no, learn Python, learn Python. But I can tell you as a job seeker, the jobs that require or are looking for Java versus it's a 10 to one or more ratio in fit, which makes sense because that's the legacy install base. So I'm curious how you guys would evaluate that for, because I feel like that question was being answered by that person for them in their current position. Yeah. And it also will depend on the sort of roles you're looking at, uh, particularly if you're looking at startups, they quite often do go for the new hip and trendy Python or React or whatever it may be that's new and big for them. Whereas if you're looking for a traditional nine to five role in a corporation, it probably is going to be something more like Java. In fact, we were discussing this the other day that I probably have more projects come up that are AngularJS 1.5, 1.7 than anything new, uh, even Angular 2 through 7 now, mm-hmm. is much less common than AngularJS because that's what's already in these businesses. So there's so many jobs out there for those even now, whereas the new stuff, a couple of them will probably survive, but it's hard to tell which one. So you're taking a bit of a gamble where the older stuff, it's pretty guaranteed it's all over the place. There's going to be work for a long time. As long as it's not so old, I, I probably wouldn't recommend learning COBOL now, but <laughs> still I certainly Java would. <laughs> Java is definitely still very strong, and particularly in enterprises, but even outside of enterprises, in any small to medium-sized company, it's going to be very common to find Java out there. You'll see um, a lot of the a lot of this discussion too. Also, uh, will differ depending on the the, the person's motivations. Uh, so, if someone's really into programming, like that's that's kind of their art, uh, that's the thing they love to do. They're going to they're going to gravitate towards more interesting languages, things that have more interesting problem sets. And uh, you know, new is always interesting. There's always something kind of new mm-hmm. on the horizon. The other thing to keep in mind is while you're picking one at the beginning, because you really do need to focus on one, that's not the end of the game you're going mm-hmm. to learn more languages as you go through your career. And if you get through Java, find that first job, then you may find, actually, I'd like to go pick up some Python now. And it's going to be easier once you've learned one because a lot of the concepts are shared across various programming languages because concepts in general with programming are much more important than the syntax. Yeah, and, if, and just to kind of comment on growing, my first programming language was BASIC, as in basic, basic, go-to spaghetti mm-hmm. language basic. So <laughs> that's definitely not what I'm programming in nowadays. So you, mm-hmm. you, you got to grow with the industry, unfortunately. And it's kind of like a language. It's it's like a spoken language. It just kind of evolves a whole lot more quickly. Yep, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess sort of in a similar vein, obviously, um, cloud technologies and all of the stuff that goes around with that is, is super hot. Um, in technology now. Is there any aspect of that that you would highlight as a priority for new developers? And how do you guys look at at that sort of, and I'll be honest, I don't fully know, is is there enough commonality for it? You know, okay, so maybe you've done some work with AWS and a prospective job is using Google or IBM Cloud, but is there enough commonality that you'll say, okay, yeah, he's learned one, he can learn the other pretty quickly. I think there is a lot of commonality. The key thing I would say there is learning the basics of infrastructure in general. Uh, In fact, for a portion of my career, I was building infrastructures for corporations. 
And that knowledge has actually been much more important than learning specifically about AWS or Azure or any of these others. Because once you understand how servers work, how the networks work, and how those pieces fit together, that actually gives you a better baseline to work with for, on any of them. I think that's a lot more important than just picking one and learning that one specific one. Yeah, and infrastructure is, I mean, in the past has been pretty cyclical on what where things reside like you know at some point everything was locally on your pc and then it kind of went back to the cloud and you know we had mainframes that were very cloud-like uh, though obviously simpler um it's just the just like the languages and the frameworks the the infrastructure that we run on changes pretty dramatically over time i mean serverless is kind of the the current buzzword i think unless something new has come up when i wasn't paying attention um and that that's <laughs> a that's, still on that one yeah, it's like that's a different infrastructure than saying spinning up multiple virtual machines in AWS to to run a cloud. So it's it, it's a bit of a moving target. Um, but mm. and then knowing like one and understanding the concepts behind hosting your own your own apps and your own sites, at least at the basic level, kind of gets you in the starting point. A lot of this stuff you have to learn kind of as you go. Like Netflix level scalability is something that's really difficult to teach and teach without being able to experience it and experiencing that requires a huge amount of sight and data so it's like there's not really a good place where you can practice that sort of thing outside of some place that's scaling like netflix or spotify or you know anybody with huge infrastructure costs yeah. does that answer um, your questions I'm, yeah <laughs> absolutely question. sorry yeah um so i'm curious whether as you, if if you guys are evaluating a, a potential new team member do you actually go and look at their GitHub accounts and what do you look for there? And, and I ask that because to me, coming at technology new, that's one of the really, to me, one of the really cool things about technology is that at least at this stage, almost everything that I've done is there publicly for someone to see if they want to, in contrast to many careers where you just sort of, well, I tell you I'm good at something and you've kind of got to take my word for it. Um, Short answer, yes, I do look at the GitHub. I'll also look at LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that. Uh, but not always necessarily to see any sort of uh, quality of the code. I'm looking for personality in those things usually. Mm. So one of the biggest things that I'm looking for with a team member is that they're going to be able to fit with the team. There are lots and lots of people who are qualified to do the work, or even if they're not qualified, quite often I can teach them the work I want them to do. But if they're not a good fit for our team, that's a much bigger problem particularly in our case because we all work remotely from home. So there's a very certain personality that we need to look for that is self-motivated and can work from home without going stir-crazy and all those other things. Um, so that's actually what I'm looking for. But certainly I will look at through the code and I will get some idea of the types of projects that they've done. But I don't rely on that entirely because certainly mm -hmm. I know a lot of my clients, I can't put things like that public. I have to... Right that portfolio private and I assume that that happens with a lot of other people so I don't take too much of that for granted yeah for me it's definitely just another data point um, especially with the junior folks you don't have a lot to go on in their career to to kind of be able to measure their varying skill sets like kind of everybody mm -hmm. who comes out of the boot camps have similar skills um, but their their github account can give you a lot more details on what they've explored on their own and what what kinds of things they're interested in um, it's it's kind of like a writing portfolio you know if I was hiring a writer mm -hmm. I would want to see things they had read before um, but like Joshua said with the experience 
it gets a little bit rougher because like most of the work I've done over the years is, is closed source and proprietary and owned by the company that I worked for. So my, my GitHub's filled with silly things. <laughs> it's probably not <laughs> the best thing to, to judge me on right. of my, you know, mm-hmm. goofy, goofy joke projects. No, actually, uh, I will say some of those goofy, silly things are the things that I'm looking for. I'm actually <laughs> looking for personal projects that you did for fun because that actually tells me a lot more about how you think and how you develop when it comes down to it based on the sorts of projects you chose, not necessarily just some cookie cutter ones that you got from the boot camp. And I've seen uh, several of them. They have certain things that they do on certain days and they push that all up onto GitHub and it does give them a wealth of stuff on there. And yeah, sometimes I am just looking for some stuff to give me some confidence that they can do it. But actually I want some shiny stuff when it comes down to it. I want things that I'm going to think, Oh, that's actually really nifty. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because, uh, that individuality that like seeing the thing that they're trying to create is a good example of um, like their experience. Like as you get more experience and you you, you can kind of focus that experience on different topics. So it'll show you both their interests and what they're good at uh, based off of the things they chose to build. Um, And so that's really helpful. Uh, Sometimes for like junior folks, I will read the code and kind of try to look for individuality within the code, like the way it's structured or the way the functions are laid out. But with you know, junior folks haven't really formed opinions on a lot of coach, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those things yet. So it's kind of limited. You know, I like people who, who write clean code. That means we have to clean up less of it later. Uh, but even mm-hmm. a, a messy programmer can be extremely useful in a team if you have somebody else who just loves refactoring and renaming and fixing white space, which I happen to be that person. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm curious, obviously, you know, as new developers, as we as we try and land that first job or second job, um, we're spending a lot of our time working on algorithms and code challenges and whatnot to, to pass the dreaded technical interview. Um, and I'm, but I'm curious, how often do those methods actually get used in the real world? And is that something that you're going to use on a regular basis, or is this something you just got to sort of view kind of like the LSAT or the MCAT? It's just the price of admission. It's the key to the kingdom. <laughs> Um, yes. Yes and no. <laughs> uh, personally, I would never use those because I don't think they work. And I'm seeing more and more companies, you know, getting rid of the whiteboard tests and uh, replacing them with things that make a little bit more sense. But to be honest with you, a lot of companies still do have tests like that. They will put you up on a whiteboard and ask you how many fire hydrants there are in New York City or whatever it may be. That's the standard question that they ask, and I don't think it works, to be honest. I think people then prepare for that sort of test, and it doesn't prove to me that you're actually a really good developer or a good fit for the team. I think it just kind of makes developers a commodity (laughs) more than people, and I don't like that. The opposite, the, the, the kind of opposite side of that thing is the, the, the part of the stuff they're testing for is the patterns of programming. So like the, the concept of a queue is, is pretty universal or the concept of a buffer, which is kind of like a queue. And like that, that's sort of what a lot of those are aimed at. And that's really useful stuff to know um, is the kind of patterns and languages and programming that, you know, you could apply to the real world even. Um, but the tests themselves tend to be really, really, really bad at actually testing on those things. They, they mm. tend to end up picking really specific subsections, like how do bubble sorts work at best. Um, and, and so you see a lot of them. You almost have to learn them to get through a lot of interviews because a lot of companies, that's just kind of what they picked as their bare minimum. 
In general, you won't use specific things. You tend not to use the ones that they teach you for the interviews, but you will use a lot of patterns in your day-to-day life. Um, they just might not be the ones you guessed. Yeah. Right. Now, I have seen uh, one of the best things that I've seen is take-home tests where you're given a lot of latitude to Google yeah. things as much as you want, come up mm-hmm. with creative solutions for things, but they have a very specific specification, which is much more like the real world. You're going to get a specification from a client or from the business, and then you have to find a way to build that and budget the time for it and everything else. And I have seen some of those popping up lately, and I do, I like those. I think those are good things to prepare for because that is very realistic. That is what you're going to get in the real world. And it's a better way to approach uh, like individual measurements too. If you give somebody a set of constraints uh, that are a problem that needs to be solved, but let, you know, however you can solve it is fine, um, then folks will kind of naturally use their strengths to to augment their weaknesses to, to find mm-hmm. kind of creative solutions to problems. So that's a much, definitely my preferred method of interviewing as opposed to trying to test on very, very specific topics that may or may not be used in whatever job you're applying for. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's definitely helpful. Um, I'm curious to see, because obviously it, as, a, as a new developer, we're often working by ourselves. But obviously, in the world, as, as you've emphasized numerous times in, in the course of this discussion, the importance of that team and the cultural and the fit. Um, so I'm curious to see if you guys have any thoughts. Are there any ways to sort of stimulate those team group dynamics while working solo? Uh, certainly, there are. Uh, in fact, because I work from home, I also go into a co-working center. Kellen does as well. We both our jobs are fully remote, but we do go into co-working centers so we can work with other professionals, get feedback and input from other people. Um, there are also a lot of developer communities on Twitter and other places on the internet where people do work together to do that sort of thing exactly, to work together on their various projects and get that sort of feedback and somebody to bounce ideas off of and get, kind of simulates being in an office and doing all those things even if you are working solo. Yeah, the, the biggest... By far the biggest important part there is feedback. Uh, When you work on your own, you're kind of, the only person you have to check everything is yourself, um, which is kind of self-reinforcing. And just (laughs) having people to bounce ideas off of or to check your work and, you know, as much as you can do that as possible so you're getting fast feedback. Um, You'll hear that as a a concept in programming for Agile. Uh, But like fast feedback on when you did something well or you did something poorly, like any way you can get that is is a great improvement and it'll also help you grow faster uh, just because you'll be like, oh, no, that's terrible. And you'll be like, what? It is? Oh, that is, you're right. That is terrible. I should be doing that totally differently. And so you'll learn faster. Um, in general, I mean, you can't you can't really learn those skills totally in isolation, uh, but there are a mm-hmm. lot of ways to kind of encounter folks without having to, to join, you know, to get hired on at places like Josh at Coworking or meetups, or you can, you know, start working on open source projects. I was going to say uh, exactly Even if you're just that. fixing typos, you at least have to, you know, communicate that, hey, I fixed this typo and finished this silly, you know, or, you know, you're, this extremely, not necessarily silly, but long process to get this submitted to an open source project. Uh, you know, there might be things you have to sign or whatever. So. All right. Great. Um, I, I think sort of following on the, the structure of this discussion, I'm curious to see um, if there is a question that either of you wish you have been able to ask a senior developer earlier in your career or advice that you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? <laughs> uh, oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, 
can I can I get this down to one or two? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly, there are some things that would have made life a lot easier if I had known them in the first place. Uh, I certainly wish I had had a crystal ball to ask what languages and frameworks I should have learned because I've learned a lot of them that just never went anywhere. Um, but I think actually, if somebody who could have helped me learn how to progress my career had told me that actually early on learning other things would be one of the quickest ways to progress my career learning project management learning how to deal with infrastructure learning how to communicate with customers those were the things that actually made me stand out as a developer and move me from junior to regular developer and then on to senior and then into higher positions more than anything else I did I I did dedicate a lot of time to learning languages and syntax and all these things but when it comes down to it it's those other things that actually were what really drove my career and I wish I had learned that many many years ago yeah and I wish I had learned not necessarily like individual questions but lots of questions so like we kind of mentioned you know just getting feedback is such an important thing and that's something I didn't learn until I was basically a senior developer that how useful that feedback is it was by far the most helpful thing on everything it's just you know, for anything that I did as, as part of my business on whether I was, how I was communicating, uh, the, the, the technologies and things I was learning, just having somebody kind of like, hey, what do you think of this idea? Um, that's experienced more of that was, would have been ridiculously useful. I'm not right. sure if I have any specific examples of any of these things that I can actually think of, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that, that both, both of those are, both of those are really good answers as well. So I guess sort of kind of along the same lines that I'm, curious if um, you've got an example that you're will that you're willing to share um, you know sort of a, a mistake you made along the way and the lesson that you learned from it <laughs> Oof. oh um let's see here <laughs> so I'm a big I'm a I'm a big proponent of learning through failure uh, <laughs> it actually is kind of an important thing is to not be terribly afraid of failure. The idea is you should mm -hmm. plan for a worst case scenario to kind of like limit the repercussions of everything going wrong. You know, have a have a back out plan when you push to production. Mm -hmm. Don't assume it's going to go well and don't try to plan for every contingency. <laughs> Simply be prepared that if it does go south, be prepared to take responsibility for it and get it back to something that at least functions as well as it was before you showed up. Um, and that, that that's a great example of something I learned through trial and error. You know, first time you push something to production and uh, production goes down and you have no plan for that. Well, that that's a lesson in itself. Um, I might have to try to think of something more specific than that, though. <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, much the same. Uh, Kellen and I actually worked together early on in our careers and we developed some very similar habits. He probably got them from me because I tend to be... <laughs> I'd like to say I'm intuitive more than a planner. So I assume things are going to go wrong. And in general, the things that I do work pretty well. But I know because I'm not one of those people who will go through and check every I and cross every T that I need to plan for contingencies and have a plan of action if things do go wrong. So while I'm sure I've made a lot of mistakes it's been very infrequent that they amounted to any real damage because I had a lot of plans to take care of that when things did go wrong. And realistically, it doesn't matter. Kellen, as he said earlier, is very good at the refactoring side of things, and he is very thorough. But even if you are very thorough, 
at some stage you're going to get something wrong. Things are going to go wrong. And having that contingency plan, having a course of action, and being able to own up to your mistakes early on are all really critical things. And they are the things that will stop those mistakes from becoming a huge mistake. And that's They'd, an example of where like individual skills and like all those extra skills you have can come really help, can be really useful uh, for when you accidentally took down a customer and now you're <laughs> on the phone explaining to them why you broke everything and how you're going to fix it and make it better. Um, you know, people skills uh, help a lot for that. Um, and that. <laughs> And being able to handle those things make you much, much more valuable uh, as an employee of that you didn't have to bring in a manager or a product manager to to calm the customer and explain to them what you were going to do to fix it. You fixed it yourself. So, you know, being prepared and capable and confident of fixing your failures is probably the most important thing. Um, and you you gain that confidence by failing and fixing it the hard way. That's kind of a also another nice place for another senior or mentor type person to help catch you when you fall a little too far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, To give you a very specific example, I did have a client. We were building a uh, case management system for them. Basically, it took orders in and allowed them to get prices, print out invoices and summaries and all the rest of that. And we pushed up a fix. It was actually a relatively minor fix, but it wasn't tested thoroughly enough, and it went out into production. And the next thing I know, I get a very angry call. Joshua, why are we getting all these bills going out for a million pounds? Uh, I don't know. Did you raise your rates? Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, It turns out we'd made a fairly minor math mistake, but it changed everything from a couple hundred pounds to a million pounds or two million pounds. <laughs> and it was a little bit embarrassing for them. Uh, and actually, in that case, I didn't have anything to fall back on. We fixed it quickly for them because we were trying to be very responsive as it was our fault. But um, sometimes you can't have a contingency plan if you don't know what's going on. But in that case, the way we dealt with that was we put in an extra unit test for him to verify that before we did it push anything new out, all the math was verified and checked before we charged anybody a million pounds for something. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I've done installs and pushed patches and done a lot of fixes that have broken something unintentionally. Um, and sometimes you can fix that. Uh, sometimes it's, oh no, I just broke the database. All right, time to, to walk through restore procedures, or maybe I can fix it. Maybe, okay, what's the time frame that I think I could possibly fix this solution in, you know, through querying and testing, and then, okay, is that acceptable to the customer? And then, and so like a lot of that is, you know, just taking responsibility for the failure and doing the, the best you can without really, again, worrying too much about what you can't. No, agreed. As long as you're not being lazy about it or not giving it due diligence, mistakes are going to happen. You just have to assume it's going to happen at some stage and be prepared for that. Right. Now that's good. Because even, I mean, obviously on a very minor scale, but that was, at least for me, um, starting this journey, that was one of the things that actually took a little while was getting used to, okay, error messages are okay. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, you learn from that, but it's, you know, you get the big red banner, oh my God, I broke something. <laughs> hmm. That is something I will say that the reality is your development career is going to take time to build up. And I've seen a lot of developers move very quickly into senior positions within a couple of years. But I think the reality is to become a good developer, to avoid those things, it takes a lot of years. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I don't have any really great examples because I started developing over 20 years ago when I was not really making any money off of it. So it really didn't matter at the time anyway and slowly built up to it. And by the time I was doing things that did cost people millions of pounds, I had a lot of experience behind me to help me avoid things like that. 
and that is something worth paying attention to. Don't try to rush it. Make sure that you're comfortable with what you're getting into. That doesn't mean you should be lazy about it. You should push your boundaries, but do it so safely for you and your company and your career. Yeah, you'll hear the advice over and over again. Don't, you know, don't be afraid of failure. <laughs> Just yeah. be prepared for failure because it's still <laughs> going to happen whether you're afraid of it or not. Yeah. That is very true. I think that really, that was my list of questions for today. Well, that was fairly pain-free. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never know what we're getting into by, you know, well, let's have somebody we met on Twitter ask us a bunch of questions for 30 minutes. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Exactly. What could go wrong? Yeah, but we do really appreciate, like like we said, we, we're... We're trying to guess what folks who are coming into the industry might ask us, and it's really difficult for us to, to kind of envision that viewpoint at this point. You know, it's always kind of the problem of the teacher of guessing what questions someone might want to ask us. It's much better just to have somebody ask us directly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on and ask us these questions. Absolutely. No, I, I, I appreciate your time very much. So. All right. Thank you again for joining us, Michael. Uh, we will put some transcripts up at gettingappsdone.com. Please be sure to check out my website at joshuagram.info and Kellen's website at piffner.com. Uh, also check out Michael's Twitter account at hippo underscore web. I'll toss some links up for those in the transcripts so that are a lot easier to find. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We come back every week on Thursdays. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>